Today, the second portion of chapter two of Daniel chapter two. This is something that I think people can make much of, and sometimes they tend to make the wrong things out of it. So as I mentioned at the very beginning, we're going to be looking at what we don't want to do with certain passages of prophetic texts, including chapter two. And it's going to become pretty clear as we walk our way very simply through this passage what God intended to happen as a result of our looking into it today. So it's an exciting passage, and I'm excited to walk through it with you today. Uh, a young pastor's daughter, this pastor had a daughter named Katie. Uh, I'm a pastor. I have a daughter named Katie. Hi, Katie. But this is a different pastor and a different Katie, just so you'll know that. But she was a school teacher grading papers in a coffee shop. She had the papers laid out in front of her. She had her red pen. She was writing marks on the papers and then putting the grade at the top. And then she was entering those grades in her grade book, which she also had out in front of her. And she could not help overhearing a conversation because it was at the very next table to her from an older woman, 50s something, who was mysteriously telling a 20s something young lady all about her life and her future. This older woman had a stack of tarot cards out in front of her and she would overturn a card and look at it and close her eyes and then her eyes would flutter and in a very mysterious tone, she would say something more about this young lady's life. And after a few minutes of this, finally the young lady had finished hearing all about herself and she thanked the lady for telling her such amazing things and the younger woman left. Well, the older woman then turned to Katie and said, after fluttering her eyes a little bit, you are a school teacher. And Katie picked up her grade book and held it up and said, wow, what a shock. <laughs> and then not to be daunted, the older lady fluttered her eyes again. And then she said, and you're married. And Katie lifted up her wedding ring which was attached to her diamond engagement ring and said, again, what a shock. Am I supposed to be surprised? And then not to be put off by that, the older woman closed her eyes, took a deep breath, and in a very mysterious tone said, your husband is a very neat and tidy man, and he dislikes having dishes piled up in the kitchen sink. <laughs> Katie had reached the end of her patience by now. And she said, you are not describing my husband. In fact, he has dishes piled up in the sink all the time. And you should have seen his house when I was dating him before we got married. She said, um, ma'am, I don't mean to be really disrespectful here, but you've been wrong one out of three times. And the first two don't really count because anybody could have figured those things out. She said, but if you would be willing, I would like to tell you about your future because I could tell you in just a few minutes how you could be absolutely confident that you can spend eternity in the presence of God who actually does know everything. And with that, the older lady frowned and picked up her tarot cards and took off in a huff. Apparently she wasn't really open to that information that Katie wanted to share with her. Well, there are people in our society and in the world who like to try to think that they can tell other people all about their lives and about their futures. And some people may have access to certain discernment, 
maybe they are spiritually gifted in a way that they can pick up on cues from people. And so they're just really resourceful in what they're sharing. And there may be some people who are have the ability to pick up some counterfeit wisdom, because we do know that Satan, the enemy of God, can give counterfeit information and actually reveal things to people that nobody else, no humans would know, but he's doing it for nefarious reasons. But what we can see in the Old Testament, and especially here in the book of Daniel, is that we do know somebody who knows everything. And when it pleases him, and when he can do so to advance his eternal purposes, God, in this case, Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God, knows not only the future, but he knows how to interpret dreams and can even tell somebody the dream that he needs to interpret as he does for Daniel. So we're going to look at that today. Only one person really knows the future. Some have, have this counterfeit knowledge. We need to be wary of that. The Bible makes it very clear. We should stay clear of these people who are considered fortune tellers because Satan can give counterfeit knowledge. And that's one reason why we should just go to the source of truth because he's a living God. We shouldn't consult with the dead. And we know that God is right 100% of the time. Let's set the scene. This is just a quick backup from last week so that we'll know where we're picking up the story. As we know, Nebuchadnezzar was furious when his wise men and magicians would not tell him the dream which he had had because Nebuchadnezzar had said, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream first. I want you to tell me the dream if you're so smart. If you have this wonderful discerning ability, then you tell me what I dreamed and then you can interpret it. That's how I'll know that you're really interpreting it correctly and that you're not trying to twist it. And he was angry about them for that, and he sent the guard to have them killed. The guard was asking Daniel uh, to come with him and told him about that. Daniel said, well, why would the king give such a harsh command? And the guy explained that to Daniel. And Daniel said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, let me go into the king and I'll ask for some more time. I'm sure the guard was probably thinking, you don't want to do that because the other magicians and wise men have already tried that. And all it did was make the king really angry. But Daniel had already won favor with King Nebuchadnezzar, as we can see at the back half of, or the bottom half of chapter one. And we understand that Daniel then went to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and asked them to pray with him that night for God to reveal that dream, which God did. And that's where we get to pick up the story today. So Daniel is going to speak with the king. I'm going to walk us through, and it's very scripture intensive today because God does a great job of helping reveal what he has for us straight out of scripture. So there's going to be very little commentary in much of what I'm going to be sharing with this section today. Daniel 2, we're going to start with verse 24 here. And then Daniel went in to see, we would say in America, Ariach. I went to a Hebrew pronunciation site and they would say Ariach, but we'll just say Ariach. So Daniel went to see Ariach whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied. Notice how he gives credit to God. There are no wise men, enchanters, 
magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. <laughs> I love the fact that he gets right into the heart of it by giving credit to God right off the bat. And then he gives God the credit again in verse 29. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about the coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. Isn't that good to know that God knows what's in our hearts? And even though we might not be able to interpret it, he can make that interpretation known to us as well. I think that's really good to know that he knows us that well. And then he describes the statue that the king dreamed about. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. In the verse 34, as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind blew them away without a trace, like shaft on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That's important to know that it became a mountain. It wasn't a mountain when it struck the statue. Now, note, remember that the king was going to kill all the wise men because they could not begin to describe what the king had dreamed. And yet this same king is listening, enraptured by every detail of what Daniel is sharing with him, and he doesn't dispute any of it, which means that he is clearly listening to his own dream. And so we can tell that Daniel has been given specifically all the detailed instructions about what that dream was, and he's sharing that with the king. Then Daniel starts the interpretation. Verse 36. That was the dream, says Daniel. Now, we will tell, notice he says we. Who's we? Well, God, the one who gives the interpretation, and Daniel. We will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. It wasn't because King Nebuchadnezzar pulled himself up by his mighty king bootstraps. He says, God gave you that authority. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. So we have the head of gold, which was Babylon, 636 to 536 BC. That's the first part of this four-part statue. Then he explains consecutive kingdoms. And this is important for the interpretation because we understand that Daniel is talking very specifically about kingdoms that are gonna follow immediately after Babylon. He gives credit to God for providing the interpretation of the king's dream. He also tells the king that he wouldn't be in position of authority 
if God had not allowed that, it's kind of reminiscent of Paul when we see in the New Testament, when Paul says, there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And then Daniel starts to explain these consecutive kingdoms, starting at verse 39. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. So we'll see here that in Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream, do you happen to notice the descending order of metals used in the making of this statue? Do the first three sound familiar by any chance? Think Olympics, perhaps? I'm sure some of you were shouting that out. It's the Olympics, it's the Olympics. Yes, you're right, you get 50 extra living water points. Woohoo! So gold is more scarce than the other metals and therefore it is more valuable. Silver, still pretty scarce, but not nearly as valuable as gold. And then of course, bronze, much more accessible. It's pretty and it's good for making statues and whatnot, but it's not nearly as valuable as silver. In fact, I just went to check out what current values estimates might be. Gold, $1,800. It's actually a little bit more than that as of this week, an ounce. That's not per pound, that's per ounce. $1,800 per ounce. Silver, $27 an ounce. I mean, for an ounce of anything, 27 bucks is pretty good, but not even close to being compared with gold. And then bronze, which is actually copper mixed with tin, about 10 cents an ounce. Not that big a deal, right? So from superior to inferior, but that was the order of succession in these kingdoms that were seen in the dream, which Daniel is interpreting. Then we can see the second kingdom and we get very specific in what's happening here. By looking back with hindsight, we can see very clearly exactly that this is playing itself out just like the king's dream was and just like God showed Daniel how to interpret it. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise up to take your place. Which was that kingdom? That would be Persia, 536 to 333 BC. And that's exactly what took place. The third kingdom then was Greece, 333 to 146 BC. That was the one represented by bronze, the Greek Greco-Roman world, because we started to see it leaning toward Rome. Fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, will crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. Yes, there were the Greeks and then came Rome. And so we had that Hellenistic period. We started leaning toward the Roman empire, but uh-oh, there's a fault in the iron. Didn't John Green write a novel by that name, The Fault in Our Iron? Hmm. Oh no, it's, it's 
The Fault in Our Stars. I'm sorry, I, I didn't read the book, nor did I see the movie, but <laughs> The Fault in Our Iron. I also saw a different movie where they had put a fake tip on the end of a javelin, but it was actually made out of this kind of baked clay so that it would break and it would show that uh, it had a real pointed tip. That wasn't a javelin, it was uh, a jousting. A knight's tale. A knight's tale, that's the movie, it was in a knight's tale. Mm -hmm. And so they were gonna be jousting and they faked the tip on that thing so that it would break as soon as it struck the armor and they had a really sharpened point at the end that would pierce that guy. Well, that's kind of what we're seeing here with this mixture of stuff in the final, the bottom, these feet and ankles just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. But there's a fault in that iron because it's mixed with this baked clay. And those things shouldn't go together because it makes it weaker. I don't know why I went to the night's tale. It's just what the picture that came into my mind. Please forgive me, but let's get back on track, shall we? All right, here we go. Verse 43. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. And we see that the Roman Empire extended pretty, pretty long time there, 146 BC all the way to 400 AD. So that's a long period where this Roman Empire existed right then. We know this, we know all this stuff because it's playing out, <laughs> the dream is playing out just like a script for a play. After Babylon came Persia, then came Greece, then came Rome, but Rome was captured and burned by the Gauls in 390 BC. That effect, though, was temporary. Soon, the Roman army rose up stronger and more determined than ever, and they began a series of campaigns that established Rome as the world empire. Rome, the fourth kingdom, then became as powerful as King Nebuchadnezzar's dream depicted just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. Now, look at all these things that Rome did in terms of conquering. They conquered central Italy, Carthage, part of Sicily. Then they conquered Hannibal who crossed the Alps to attack Rome. Then they gained control of the Western Mediterranean Sea. And 50 years after the great Carthage defeat, Rome became the mightiest state in the East by conquering Hannibal's ally, Philip V, King of Macedonia. And then Rome advanced on Antiochus III, King of Syria. Rome defeated Antiochus in 190 BC. And by the end of the third and final Macedonian War, 168 BC, Roman had control over Western Greece. Macedonia became a Roman province in 146 BC, and that ended the Carthaginian Empire and gave North Africa completely to Rome. Wow, quite the empire. But, and this is worth noting, even though Rome conquered the world, it could not control itself. It was a divided kingdom as depicted in the king's dream like iron mixed with clay. Partly strong, but also partly brittle. Now, where I come from, they'd say, Rome just got too big for its britches. <laughs> they got prideful, they got selfish, they got arrogant, addicted to instant gratification and luxury because they were so powerful that they thought, we can do whatever we want and nobody's gonna take this power away from us. Well, 
Those with very little, the peasant farmers and those on the lowest rungs of the economic and social ladder became less and less represented in their government and conflicts began to arise between the aristocratic party and the popular party. They became really divided. And after Constantine died in AD 337, the Roman Empire became divided east against west and civil wars continued for years, exactly as was predicted in the king's dream, which Daniel interpreted. Now, I need to put a little pause here, a little parentheses and say, we need to understand in reading through this kind of prophetic book that we want to avoid two pendulum swing extremes. Some, and there are some commentators who have gone to this extreme, boil all this down into a really vague generality. They'll say, well, basically all this is metaphoric and it's all in a dream state. And it's really not meant to point to any specific countries or nations. It's really just to, supposed to tell us that God is sovereign. Amen? God is sovereign. And Daniel could have written that in one sentence. Instead, he told the king a dream that Daniel had never heard of before. And he went into such specific detail because God was indeed doing something. He was up to something and he was trying to encourage his faithful followers in some area. So let's not miss some of the points that God's gonna have for his followers in chapter two of Daniel by going to the extreme of making it into a general vague, well, God is sovereign. There's also this contemporary correspondence which we need to avoid because clearly they were talking about specific kingdoms that came right after Babylon. That meant those kingdoms back then. Some people have tried to grab these specific events of chapter two, and they've tried to say that they are gonna be represented today with contemporary uh, nations or leaders or events. And so they're trying to predict things that are happening right now. That's not the purpose of chapter two in Daniel. Let's not go there. So that's two extremes. One, a very specific contemporary correspondence. The other is a vague generality. Somewhere in the middle is what we actually have here, at least this far into Daniel. So be patient. We're going to walk our way all the way through Daniel. There are some things that are going to point to future events as well, but that's not where we are right now. People try to do that all the time. They'll grab just a couple of verses out of context, and they just know that they've had some prophetic dream, and I've seen a bunch of them on YouTube lately. You know what I do with them? I don't watch them. Because we can consult God's word, and especially when he's this specific about the interpretation of a dream, which Daniel gave, he's giving it to us right here. We just have to read it for ourselves. And then we get to something that's very important. This is where we start to see something that's being predicted in the future. And remember, I told you that we had near future events, then we had farther future events, and then some eschatological events, things that were way down the, the road, like the end times. So we're really starting to just see that there's another kingdom predicted, and this kingdom is going to be predicted as to when it's going to be coming to earth. And that starts in verse 44. Let's start right there in our passage. During the reigns of those kings, those kings, hold on to that. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That's the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands. That crushes to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. 
The dream is true and its meaning is certain. So here we see that another kingdom is being predicted and it's going to be set up during the reigns of those kings. And this kingdom is going to be set up by God himself. Hmm. So who is this stone cut from the mountain, though not by human hands? Well, I think we're going to have some foreshadowings of somebody coming that's very important in this. The stone cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, refers to the kingdom of God. This section provides a win for us, and that's very important. The seeds of the kingdom that we're talking about are already being planted through the children of Israel who are in exile at this point. But that's not really talking about these first three kingdoms that come. We're not talking about the ones that were the first uh, top third, uh, three of four parts of that statue. We're really looking at what happens during Rome, that fourth kingdom. That's when we see the wind coming to bear. When it says the kings of Rome here in this slide, that's what he meant by saying during the reigns of those kings. It's when the leaders of this Roman Empire, that's when the kingdom of heaven is really going to come upon us in a way that's going to be undisputed. And it's very, very clear. Then we see that the king tries to worship Daniel. Interesting. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshiped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. Why would he do that? Because he saw power and he's a power broker and he wants to sidle up to that power. We can also see though, we're going to read just a little bit further down in Daniel, and we can see that this was a very temporary conversion. It was a foxhole Christianity. When somebody converts just for the time being and says, God, if you get me out of this mess, <laughs> yeah, okay, it's temporary. It wasn't a real full-time conversion. So first we see that Nebuchadnezzar tries to worship Daniel, even though Daniel has consistently told the king that it was God who gave him the ability to interpret the dream. Daniel couldn't do it. God did it. It's very similar to something that happened in the New Testament. We see that when the Apostle Paul and his missionary friend Barnabas were mistaken as gods by some people who saw God's power displayed to them. Let me read a portion of that for you. While they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached, looking straight at him, Paul realized that he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up. <laughs> and the man jumped to his feet and started walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul must be Hermes because he was the chief speaker, must be the messenger god. Now, the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town where they were at the time. So the priest of that temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates. They were preparing to offer sacrifices and worship the apostles. <laughs> but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay and ran out among the people shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings, just like you. We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things, these idols, and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. In the past, 
he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Does this kind of harken back to what we've been seeing happening in the Old Testament? To turn from to their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. Sometimes people want to worship what they think is going to get them what they want. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. People want to worship that which they think is going to get them instant gratification or power or prestige or popularity or anything else that they are setting up as success. And Paul is saying, no, true success is faithfulness to the living God. And you all should never worship us. That's why we should never try to incorporate anything that would be like fortune telling in our worship either, because we shouldn't worship those people for their skills. Got to be careful where they might have even gotten those skills from. So then we can see that Nebuchadnezzar worship, worships Daniel's God. It's quite possible. Sometimes we can see that something happened between one verse and the next. I can't help but wonder if maybe Daniel did to Nebuchadnezzar exactly what Paul did and Barnabas to that crowd that maybe between verse 46 and verse 47, Daniel said, no, remember, Neb, that I told you earlier, it was God who gave me this ability. And it was God who's the one who's doing all this. God is the one who, who's greater. So truly, he says, your God is greatest of all gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal the secret. So he kind of shifts a little bit. Instead of worshiping Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar worships Daniel's God. And you can read ahead a little bit and see that it was temporary. Then the king promotes Daniel. <laughs> then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all the wise men. Sounds a little bit like Joseph's story, doesn't it, in Egypt? When the Pharaoh promotes Joseph to being second only to Pharaoh himself and puts him in charge of all this stuff, isn't that amazing how God will raise people up into the right places like that? We have been praying for God to raise up godly leaders, even in our own nation, who can be in positions of authority and influence even if they're not the key leaders. But those key leaders need people next to them who are godly people who can speak truth into their lives. And we continue to pray that. Then he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. At whose request? Well, at Daniel's request. And of course, he's going to take Daniel's request very seriously because he thinks that Daniel is not only extremely wise, but Daniel follows this powerful God who reveals mysteries. So the king appoints Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. God's timing is very different than our timing. That was the case in the Old Testament. It was the case even back then. And God's ways are much higher than our ways. And boy, do we ever have to be reminded of that. I know I do again and again, but what God was doing here was setting up hope for the coming Messiah for generations to come. When was God doing all this stuff? It still wasn't going to happen right away. He's showing his people that they need to be patient and be faithful because it's not going to be in the next couple of generations. They need to keep looking for the Messiah, but 
He was going to send that Messiah and it was going to come at a specified time in history. He wanted his people to have hope that leads to faithful commitment to him. He wanted his people to follow this prophecy when, from one generation to the next until finally they would see that anointed one, the Christos, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, come onto the scene, and it would come during the Roman Empire. So to those living under the Persian rule, not yet. Be patient, it's coming, but not in this particular generation. To those who are there in the Greek Empire, they could look back at Daniel and say, yeah, it's still not there. We've got another kingdom to come yet before we can actually see when this promised Messiah is coming. And you know that there had to have been people who are studying these scriptures. And we know that some of them had to have been clinging to this as a word of hope. Folks, we have that same word of hope. And it's going to be pointing us as we keep making our way through this book to a future hope for us as well. Because this is talking about the first advent, but we're going to have a second advent and there's hope and we can live faithfully knowing that Jesus is going to be coming again. Imagine those living in the time when they saw the new rising kingdom from the West defeat the Greeks in Corinth at 146 BC. Some who knew this prophecy in Daniel would have been saying, the time of the Messiah must be getting close since we know that he will come to earth during the reign of these kings of Rome. It's getting close. But God's timing is not always as we see. And so we know that sometimes these things can stretch out because that empire lasted a long time and it was gonna be at least another 140 years until the Messiah actually showed up, but he did show up. That gives us hope as well, because we can look back at that and say, there were probably many who gave up, many who thought, nah, this really isn't something we can, we can uh, trust in, this scripture, this prophecy, but he did come and he came exactly when he was predicted to come. So even though some of us may be thinking, I don't know, this whole talk about second coming, I'm not so sure about that. Oh, folks, we can be absolutely sure about it. And we can hang on with faithfulness because it can come like a thief in the night. We should be ready. And then starting small, but becoming a great mountain. Daniel shows us that this stone that starts very small, the stone that struck the image, that blew it apart, it just destroyed it completely so that all those little pieces would be blown away like chaff in the breeze, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The kingdom of God started small and has been growing ever since. The stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. We saw that predicted in Psalm 118. That was kind of a prophetic Psalm as well. And we understand that Jesus is that stone. He became the chief cornerstone for us, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised all the way back in the Old Testament and all the way through the Old Testament is the one who started very small and he started meek. In fact, those who had been looking at the Old Testament and all these prophecies would have understood that it was going to start small. Even though people mistook all these prophecies for something that they wanted to see happen. They wanted a mighty warrior to come on the scene. They wanted somebody that would lead a charge against those leaders back then. But if they had read, even in the book of Isaiah, they would have known that he was gonna be coming as a suffering servant. That was the kind of Messiah that God would send to us. His ways are not our ways. Many expected a mighty warrior coming in the fashion of 
Joshua, the great leader, Yeshua. They even had the same name, so they were thinking, oh, we know what kind of a warrior we're going to have. Nope, they got the suffering servant. He became the stone that the builders rejected, and yet he became the chief cornerstone. So what's your response? The revealer of mysteries has come. He has provided abundant evidence everywhere we look, including all the way through the Old Testament. And now that we're seeing this evidence even here in the book of Daniel, God had a plan. He has a plan. It's a huge plan. And that plan pointed like a neon sign to Jesus, the anointed one who takes away the sins of all the people who will trust in him. Have you placed your trust in this Jesus? And if not, will you? Let's pray. Father, it just boggles my mind when I see the detail and the depth of your word, particularly as you continue to reveal yourself and your plan, all which has to do with Jesus, the one who died in our place on a cross to pay the sin price we could never pay for ourselves so that we could be reconciled with you, a holy God, even though we were sinful and unholy. That's the gospel, and it's so clear all through the Bible. And I long for people to grasp this truth, that you loved us that much, that even while we were sinners, you died for us. Even before we became aware of you, you were doing something so gracious and magnanimous. May we put our trust in you, knowing that you are that loving God, and that we can never pay you back, and so we want to just keep loving you back. I pray that there are some today, if they're hearing this, that need to take that step of faith, that they'll do so, and that they'll continue to talk with you, to talk with others, they'll read the scriptures, that they'll gather together with other believers who are on the same journey, not because any of us have any supernatural wisdom like uh, Nebuchadnezzar thought Daniel had, but Daniel would explain, I'm just a guy. It's God who has all this ability. The same thing with us and i pray that people will understand that that they'll gather together with fellow human beings knowing that you're the one god who has the supernatural ability you're the one who reveals your wisdom to us and i thank you that you forgive sinners like me and like everybody else because we're all sinners so that we can have a relationship with you and i thank you for that thank you for the life we can live with purpose in jesus christ in jesus name i pray amen